a young pony to do in a sea of shady ICOs. A lion's courage can light up even the darkness of shadows. Unlike the corporate suits, the whale panda is wise. A chicken dreams about the moon while soaring in the skies. As Bitcoin sees new all-time highs. All around me I see big blockheads crypto. The best thing to do is simply to huddle. Tries to turn the tide, you'll quickly rush to my side Hot and fix until she's will crown But I'm not scared to go around We'll always run a full Bitcoin core node Scaling the right way is a long and challenging road Sanguid is now here for the USF we cheer Layer 2 solutions are a must Always verify from trust Magical crypto All around me I see big blockheads And then he told them he was Monero Jesus. <laughs> oh, good one. <laughs> okay. Good. Okay, guys. Good morning. Good evening for some of us. So with us, we still have um, Bruce Lee's long lost son, Charlie. Samsung, who is like, want to be the Giorgio Armani of crypto. And the real cryptocurrency expert from South Africa, Ricardo. The first show had really good reviews. I, I was actually pleasantly surprised by it. Not too many trolls. I had an entire thing planned, an entire agenda, and then Charlie dropped a bomb yesterday with his announcement that he didn't have any more Litecoins, that he sold all his Litecoin. So um, we discussed this a bit a bit yesterday, and apparently there are like half the people like it, half the people don't. Mostly the traders are, are the ones that don't really like the idea of a developer not having any stake in it anymore. You want to elaborate on the entire story, Charlie? From what I can tell, the people who hated it are the people who were traders and wanted Litecoin to really price to go up to make the money. So the fact that I don't, I don't own any means that I don't believe in the project and um, the future is bleak. That's what they think. So do you, do you believe in the project? Yeah, I mean, Litecoin is my baby. I, I want to succeed more than anyone else in this world so it doesn't it doesn't matter if i hold any litecoin i still am fully invested in it so the the magazine or publication or whatever it was that said that you sold your litecoin to avoid being investigated for insider trading i thought that was hilarious well yeah i mean yeah there's one tweet that said the reason why i sold it is because coinbase is investigating me for insider trading or at least implied that it's pretty stupid but no i mean it i did sell it for for conflict of interest reasons not that i mean the fact that i own litecoin is actually good it's actually um, not a conflict right the conflict is because i tweet so much and whenever i tweet um it because i have like whatever what is it four hundred thousand followers now potentially could move the price and i could buy litecoin before i make an announcement of good news or sell litecoin before i make an announcement of bad news and profit like a lot from this. So I kind of just decided that I don't want to kind of ever have to think about not tweeting something because it could look bad. So I just decided that eh, I don't need the the Litecoin. I don't need to make money from Litecoin. I've made enough and I'm still going to work on it. So it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, but at the same time, when you say you made enough, that made it sound like, oh, I dumped the top. Uh, so, yeah, bye, guys. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to not dump the top because everything is at the top right now. So everybody can dump the top right now. So, I mean, it's not that. <laughs> and it's, this is probably, this will definitely not be the top of Litecoin. So probably like two years later, people will be saying like, that's stupid of me for dumping at, what, $300? So we'll see. I've I've got friends who bought Bitcoin um, at like two dollars and sold pretty much everything at when we broke two hundred. So I don't think that fundamentally taking profit is bad because you can always get back in later on if you want to take more profits if if that's your goal. I don't think you'll kick yourself ever for selling Litecoin and taking profit. No, I mean. For me, I mean, if Litecoin succeeds, I'd be I'd be so proud of it. And this is like I'm dedicating my life to it. It's something I created, and it doesn't matter to me that much if I make more money from it. I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm upset that I sold Litecoin. I mean, I've I've made enough. I'm happy with with what I have. So you should have just traded. So <laughs> Pony can show Litecoin, and you show Monero. Yeah, Charlie, just think about it. You you sold your Litecoin for Monero. Let's just just be honest. So. So you tell me good things about Monero, like you tell me in the news before and I'll, I'll buy Monero and then I'll tell you about Litecoin and you buy Litecoin. Perfect. And of course, it's completely, there's, you know, there's no conflict because like we're just friends. We're not family. Yeah. And according to Roger, insider trading is perfectly legal. So we're good. Yeah. And one thing though, um, would you ever consider doing the same thing, Ricardo? I didn't believe in Monero at the beginning. The code base had almost no comments. We didn't really know what we were doing. It was a mess. Um, but I knew that because it was a code base, it wasn't based on Bitcoin. And it had these really innovative privacy features that it would pump. If I'm being honest, like that was my initial interest was like, hey, I'm going to mine a bunch of this and I'm going to sell it when it hits Cryptsy. And then I sold a bunch when it hit Poloniex and MintPal instead. And so I sold a, a, the, a massive portion and took fantastic profits. And I'm not unhappy about that. I think that it was a good move at the time because obviously I had no idea that Monero had a greater value. Subsequent to that, I've obviously, you know, fallen in love with Monero and uh, I love the community. I love the work that we're doing. I think that, that Monero is a net positive benefit for mankind. But I definitely am also, um, th there's this part of me that is just super pragmatic it always has been um and so i have a selling plan when i bought tenebrix fabrics and eventually litecoin um i had a selling plan when i bought bitcoin i had a selling plan with monero i've got a selling plan um i sell five to ten percent every time the price doubles from the previous point where i sold and i've stuck to that so it means that my stash of monero is not like massive it never has been i've always worked on monero because i found it interesting I don't think I'll ever exit completely because even with, you know, scams that I've bought into and taken profit, I've always maintained just a little bit at the end or left a little bit at the end as like a hodl portion, just in case that scam happens to pump in future. So I'll, I'll always have a portion of Monero. It's just never going to be a massive stash because I don't need to. I, you know, like Charlie, in many ways, Monero is my baby. I paid for stuff out of pocket for years. Um, I, I worked at it constantly without, you know, dealing with trolls and all of that and without any sort of love from anyone except for the very tiny community. And appreciation and price is nice, but it's not necessary. You know, I appreciate the fact that there are people in the community that occasionally just say thanks and that's enough for me.
Yeah, no, I, I like your idea of, of selling 5 to 10% every time it, it doubles. And I'm also holding my scams. I, I always have some Litecoin and some Monero. So, yeah, uh, I think that's a, that's a good idea. So moving on to the next subject, um, also been a lot of talk recently about proof of work, um, how it's been wasteful, how it's Bitcoin proof of work, Bitcoin mining is using as much uh, energy as Denmark. The, the two issues I have with this argument about proof of work being a waste, um, the first is that it's often presented, it's always presented without an alternative, or when they do present an alternative, it's proof of stake. Um, and, and proof of stake, even if you can do all sorts of magical things there, it's not as robust as proof of work. We don't have an alternative to proof of work. There's interesting stuff being uh, researched, like uh, Bram Cohen's uh, proof of space and time. But I mean, that's still a ways off, you know, in terms of, of really being able to analyze its robustness. You can make all sorts of theoretical claims, but in terms of actual, like, provable robustness, nothing beats proof of work. And so, so without an alternative, what are we supposed to do? Just like pull the plug and go like, oh, you know, we think it might be wasteful. The second issue that I have is um, the comparison is often made to like Visa or MasterCard or whatever, or PayPal. And then they say like, oh, you know, Visa operates data centers and that's all. Um, and, and Bitcoin's so much more wasteful. But then they forget about all these other elements that are part of the Visa ecosystem, the, the ability to swipe a credit card, the production of wasteful credit cards that have expiry dates. You know, you throw the piece of plastic in the trash and it's got a half-life of 500 years. The bank manager that has to drive his car to and from work, the production of the machines that you swipe or put, or put your EMV card in or tap or whatever, um, all the hardware, the specialist hardware that's required for um, the banks to operate. You know, these are all like transaction switches, all of this stuff. These are all like crazy things that are part of that process, but are largely ignored when it comes to um, proof of work is wasteful, you know, and, and, yeah. uh, and that's really like those, those are, are two major concerns I have with the argument, the, the lack of, a, of an alternative and the fact that it's only analyzing one small part of the, the system. Yeah, it's, it's easy to do a rough calculation uh, on the back of the napkin and say Bitcoin burns this much power, it's wasteful. It's much harder to calculate all those things you said, all the fragmented costs that are kind of hidden and hard to find too. But I think uh, proof of work is reliable and it's the only real way we have to secure uh, a digital currency in any reliable manner and in a fair manner at this time. But there's actually a Satoshi quote that uh, addressed this issue. I'll just read it to you guys. It was about the um, same thing. It's like on Bitcoin Talk in 2010. So he said, it's the same situation as gold and gold mining. The marginal cost of gold mining tends to stay near the price of gold. Gold mining is a waste, but that waste is far less than the utility of having gold available as a medium of exchange. I think the case will be the same for Bitcoin. The utility of the exchanges made possible by Bitcoin will far exceed the cost of electricity used. Therefore, not having Bitcoin would be the net waste. So basically, there would be an opportunity cost to not having Bitcoin, to not being able to make these uncensorable transactions or not having a reliable store of value. And I think that is the real cost that we would have if there was no Bitcoin. It's easy to say something wastes energy. You could just as easily say internet wastes energy, right? People just use it to watch cat videos. But uh, it's, it's, there are far more use cases than just that. 
from my point of view, the the cost of the electricity is what is actually providing the security for the for the network, right? Security for the coin. In order to attack the coin, you the attacker would have to match the network um, hash rate, so the network the electricity used by the network to attack it. So in some sense, this is what's providing the value of this decentralized network. And I guess you can even consider this is like the intrinsic value of, of Bitcoin or Litecoin or cryptocurrency in general, just or proof of work coins, right? The this is actually what's providing value. Yeah, and another thing, um, together with all those articles about how, how Bitcoin was or Bitcoin mining is wasteful, there is also a positive narrative that um, it allows electricity companies and and miners to to invest in in green energy. I know, for example, that in uh, in New Zealand, there are a couple of hydro dams that are that were not being used, and now some miners are looking into uh, using that um, as a source of uh, cheap electricity uh, for mining. So it can also have a very positive effect on the producing producing of electricity itself. Yeah, I know so, a in China that actually um, purchased an abandoned hydroelectric plant and have like fixed it up, and they're using that. Um, to to cover their electricity because they're miners. They're obviously profit motivated. Why should they be paying more for electricity when they can reduce their costs? Yeah, so miners always want to maximize profits and minimize their costs. And it also happens to be that hydroelectric power is the cheapest power available. So most mining is powered by green energy. Um, and there's also uh, energy arbitrage. So a lot of miners are just using available power that would have just gone to waste or not been used. So in China, there's a small town. They had like a massive mining operation there, but it used to be like a, a steel mill. So that consumes a, a lot of uh, electricity, but all the steel mills were shut down, actually. So there's an abundance of power and, and no use for it. So they kind of switched to mining. How is this weird thing where storing it is not so easy? You can store it in batteries, but that's like not particularly efficient. And so there's a limited amount that can be stored. So, you know, where there's additional um, electricity being produced, it, it, that just gets wasted. It's like, well, we have this like extra electricity. Let's just throw it away. Yeah. Okay. So uh, on to the next topic, kitties, more specifically <laughs> crypto kitties. Uh, it, it was actually very interesting. Uh, it, it's like already a couple of weeks ago that it, that it was so popular. But it came out, it, it's a typical crypto thing. It's a meme, so everyone just starts going crazy for it and it blows up uh, Yeah, in, in, in a couple of days. So basically the, the idea behind it is that you can breed different cats uh, with special characteristics and they can create unique cats and they, those can have other characteristics and they can get more unique. Yeah, um, so you can have very expensive cats because there was a marketplace, but the thing, about it was that every t every um, time you breathe a cat or, or do something, it, it's another transaction on Ethereum blockchain. At one point, it was like two or three dollars per um, thing that you did with your cat. So this actually showed that blockchains don't scale very well, and that it's a huge waste of of space to have millions of cat transactions on stored on a ledger and yeah it, it doesn't make much sense to, to have that stored for every, every cat transaction stored forever on the blockchain so maybe this is more something for like side chains or something like that what are you guys thinking about yeah i mean the cats people always want to put all the all the transactions on blockchain but they don't realize that 
the cost is someone has to pay for it, right? You're storing this on a global decentralized ledger for the rest of time. And do you really need to store these transactions on, on the main chain? The answer is no, you don't need to store these crypto kitty transactions on the main chain that's that's secured. Well at least for Bitcoin that's like that's uncensorable and and will be stored for the for the for all time, right? So yeah. These things would probably go on better go on like a side chain or a lightning network or stuff like that. So some people would argue with you, Charlie. They'd say, no, it's got to be on the main chain, along with the coffee and, uh, you know, everything. I mean, there's my point of view is that there there will be multiple chains, right? So Litecoin can can help handle the transaction volume and other chains can help. So, so you'll take a few eventually. Cats. Yeah, I'll take a, I'll take a few cats. All right. Some you're, dogs, you're a lifesaver. Yeah. But I mean, people don't realize like if there's a there's a trade off, right? You can't you can't. There's no such thing as free lunch. You can't just store these things for cheap forever. Yeah. And, and plus, we just talked about the power. Yeah. I think I think the other thing that what, what CryptoKitties has, has demonstrated is that on-chain scaling is extremely hard, if not impossible. And the biggest problem is that all of the decentralized uh, digital currencies um, right now, they, we'd all struggle with, uh, with that level of, of traffic um, and, and transaction volume um, no one's ready for it and and so scaling prematurely by just ramping up block sizes unfortunately it might buy you some time but it doesn't mean that you're going to be ready for that level of volume uh, on the other hand you have the the whole dag and you know spectre and all those sort of technologies which are really interesting um, but unfortunately in their current form and stuff like iota um, uh, you've got lots of centralization so you know if we put those aside and we focus on the the stuff that's properly decentralized um the handful of cryptocurrencies that are like honestly no one is ready for that that level of of use and definitely not for mainstream adoption use it, it actually also brought up another uh, interesting subject um because the the owner of the smart contract can just pause it and then you lose all your, or, or like you cannot do anything with your cats anymore. People thought, oh, I got my, I bought my cat, I have my cat now. But if the owner of the smart contract just pauses the, the game, um, no one can do anything with it anymore. So the people are thinking it's decentralized, but at the same time, it's it's completely centralized. It is. The owner can also change like the attributes, right? If you have a rare attribute, they can just change it to something really stupid, and then then your cat won't be worth anything anymore. I mean, they probably wouldn't, but they, I mean, it's just that it's, it's centralized. I mean, it's, it's a gimmick, right? Is it still popular today? I haven't really paid much attention to it. It was, it was just like, a well, by, by the time that this is, this, uh, this show is coming out, probably not anymore anyway. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think like the hype is over. It, it was like two, three days of, of really insane hype. And it was everywhere on every newspaper and on every website. And that's gone. So yeah, but it's a, it's a good thing to have that because it shows very clearly. At least I think it shows very clearly that blockchains don't scale, and people need to start understanding that so they stop crying for bigger blocks and you know, solutions that go nowhere. Because that is just one DAP, and if uh, Ethereum delivers on the promise of like hundreds of thousands of DAPs, you know that's like a thousand times of this. The, the scaling problems they're having with crypto kitties. Yeah, I mean, I always go back to the question, like, do you really need decentralized applications? I mean, for certain applications, maybe, but like, 
for CryptoKitties. If Google is running a, a app platform that you can write to and you write an app, a CryptoKitty app for it, it's centralized, it runs fine and like transaction TPS is really high. Who cares, right? Who, who really needs it to be decentralized for that application? So, I mean, I think Ethereum is, is great. It's doing something that very interesting, but in the end, it would have, it would start to cost a lot of money for transactions because it's a decentralized world computer, right? So, um, and not many applications will really need that. But what, what if I'm really concerned about the government stealing my crypto kitties? Then you pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that the, the most important thing to take away from this is that blockchains don't scale. On to the next point, um, the market is going crazy, Litecoin making new highs, Monero making new highs, but Bitcoin, obviously. We have never seen such an insane demand, not just um, Bitsam, for example. They uh, said that they have like 100,000 signups, per, new signups per day. Um, Bitrex recently said that they have 500,000 concurrent users, which is crazy if you think about it. Like half a million users at the same time online on a crypto exchange. Um, we also seen a lot more uh, mainstream media coverage, like CNBC. But my, my main issue with it is that the, these mainstream media are always um, picking experts which aren't really experts or like even quite the opposite of experts. Is there a way to educate the mainstream media or the people more like this? I think they, they, they look for these guys just for the shock value because they're going to say crazy stuff and crazy stuff will get them ratings. So for a lot of these publications or shows, they don't really care about the truth. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of effort to do a little bit of due diligence and just look in and fact check these guys, but they don't even do that. They just kind of nod along and say, yeah, this is great. Thanks for coming on. For some reason, I don't know what it is, but mainstream media tends to gravitate towards like fund managers. Um, I remember a while ago, like a year and a half ago, there was an article on Monero they literally spoke to nobody in the Monero community and they went and interviewed like Peter from Waffle Capital and John from this hedge fund. And they spoke to them about Monero. And I'm like, these people are not qualified to give an opinion on Monero, at least not, not just by themselves. It should be presented as uh, maybe some sort of balancing factor along with the Monero community or people who have actually built stuff on Monero people who have written code that is in use today. Like, let's balance it out. Let's talk to both people and then present that. But for some reason, they gravitate towards this. And I keep seeing it over and over and over again. The people who write books and the people who um, run hedge funds and, and uh, VCs and that. It's so weird. Yeah, and, and talking about books, um, th there are people writing books about Bitcoin and blockchain that I never even heard about. I was I was at the Riga conference and I got a book from a Belgian guy. There are not a lot, a lot of Belgians in Bitcoin yet. I never heard of the guy and he wrote like an entire book about it. He gave it to me. It was nice of him. But if I never heard about you, I'm, I'm in Bitcoin already quite a while. Then I, then I immediately question the quality of your work. I mean, I, I didn't read it yet. It might be good, but... If you start inviting people like that as experts, people who have been in the industry for a while that, that haven't heard about those people, then, yeah. So, so there's an interesting theory that, uh, I don't know if you guys uh, remember uh, Mersha Popescu. So Mersha mm -hmm. uh, used to be 
like the, the dark overlord of an RC channel called Bitcoin Assets. And um, one of the things that, that he had was that uh, the entire channel was locked down and you couldn't speak unless you had voice. And in order to get voice, you needed to be within the trust network of somebody else that was within the trust network. And the reason for this is he forced people to sit there and lurk. And only after you had lurked for a while and you got to know like, you know, some stuff about Bitcoin after like six months of lurking, then you could maybe like start chatting to people privately or people would recognize you from other rooms and then you might get voice. Uh, you could ask for voice sometimes um, and they would temporarily voice you for 30 minutes so that you could express your opinion on something. But if you're an idiot, then you'd get de-voiced and you'd never get it again. Um, and I sort of think like, it would be great if this translated to real life um, and people that, that came into this crypto, the digital currency, cryptocurrency, whatever space, were forced to lurk for six months without expressing their opinion and then slowly were allowed like to be more and more vocal instead of this like, hey, I'm a new person and I've read a Wikipedia article and now I'm writing a book. And you, you also see people on, on LinkedIn, for example, now being like a Bitcoin evangelist and stuff like that or blockchain experts. Who've been people who've been in the blockchain for like or in Bitcoin been like three months. They're suddenly like blockchain experts and 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 yeah, it really makes no sense. You you still have uh, people saying that they're a core developer even though they haven't worked on a project for years, and they barely contributed any code any code too. So uh, an interesting question. Uh, let's change things up a bit. Um, Ricardo came with this yesterday. So someone in the South African channel asked, uh, I think you guys should uh, give out a, a statement for everyone who uh, has family, has to talk or interact with family during the holidays and who like claim that Bitcoin is a Ponzi, it's money from nothing, it's a currency, it's without value, it's like internet money using up all the electricity in the world. So how would you suggest that our viewers uh, reply to statements like that. I don't hear about people calling Bitcoin Ponzi that much anymore. I think the mainstream media is talking about Bitcoin all the time, and I think people are just realizing the potential of Bitcoin, not thinking too much about it being a Ponzi anymore. Yeah, Ponzi was more like a 2016 thing that people were calling it. Now it's just a fraud. I, I definitely have seen people... Um, <laughs> That they can't. The problem is they can't wrap their head around it, and I guess it's more like, you know, your uncle who used to be an accountant. It's that sort of person, and they can't wrap their head around how Bitcoin works. And so, their go-to is it must be tulip mania. It, it's the dot-com mm. bubble. It's the housing market crash of the eighties, whatever. You know, they've got all these analogies of like what Bitcoin is. Well, they can't understand why it has value. Yes, they can't understand why it has value. That's exactly it. Yeah, so how would you reply to someone like that? I just don't talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like to, I like to talk a little, I mean, I like to talk to them about gold um, because gold has very little uh, actual utility. I mean, it does have utility, right? You can, it's used in, in some electrical components and so on. But let's be honest, gold has very little real utility and a lot of its value is like this intrinsic value we give it because it's somewhat rare and it's somewhat pretty and can be used in jewelry or, you know, whatever. Yeah, but that's all subjective. Like all of the, all money is a human construct. It's just something we make up. Just like 
nation states and things like that, right? So if we can mix that up, then we can say that, you know, this magic internet money is valuable. It's just as easy. That's what we're doing today. <laughs> we're fooling everyone. <laughs> Daddy needs a new lab book. Yeah, but going back to the question, I think it's better to talk to them about what, what makes things valuable and just approach it from that angle. Because if you go through the mental exercise of what makes gold valuable, then it's pretty clear digital currency does too. Well, what makes like cryptocurrency valuable is, to me, it's the, well, one of the major aspects is the, is the fact that it can't be censored, right? So it's money that you yourself own and no one can tell you what you can or cannot do with your money. And that's something that wasn't previously, that didn't previously exist. And the second is that you can send it to, um, it's global, right? You can send it to someone on the other side of the world uh, easily. Whereas with something like gold, you can't you can't just like send an ounce of gold to someone in China. You have to mail it, and then also like storage is costly for gold. So if you compare it to gold, it's like a better version of gold. I think you, there's like <laughs> permits needed to actually ship gold around. And when you're dealing with massive quantities of money and, and value, it takes like hundreds of millions of dollars to move gold. I think Germany tried to move their gold from the U.S. and it was like three months by boat with armed guards and details. And it was like a couple hundred millions of dollars just to move the gold. Yeah. Actually, talk, talking about moving stuff, um, I, I just thought about normally when, when you move between countries, you, you're allowed to have like $10,000 uh, worth of cash on you. What happens if you have your Trezor or whatever? something else on you because it depends on the country and how they view it the that's called the travel rule and the travel rule um i, I mean i've the only place i've ever actually seen the travel rule enforced um has been the us where we were leaving uh, flying out of los angeles and uh, they checked our bags uh, they asked us if we had more than ten thousand dollars in cash um, and they were checking some people's bags to confirm um, the thing with the travel rule is it's not that you're not allowed to carry more than $10,000 in cash. It's just that you have to declare it. Um, and then they might ask you, why have you got half a million dollars in in euros or whatever? And you'd have to justify that. Um, and, and that can be tricky for some people, um, you know, unless you've got a specific reason, like you're going to a trade show. But it's only it's only for cash, though. So if you have Bitcoin cash, that's a problem. If you have Bitcoin, it's not an issue. <laughs> So, so Zcash and, and Bitcoin Cash are the, the real issues there. Yeah, definitely. Bitcoin, Litecoin, Monero, you're, you're good. Actually, actually going, going back to your point about Ponzi, uh, certain people are calling Bitcoin a Ponzi again. Uh, certain people from a certain um, subreddit and uh, friends of that subreddit. So they're now pushing the narrative that because of the transaction fees, Bitcoin is starting to be a Ponzi because no one can... Uh, or not everyone can sell their coins anymore if they own less than a certain amount um, because of the high transaction fees. Look, at the end of the day, if you're, th there are traders who deal in, in really small amounts, right? They like those like sub, sub one cent currencies and all that sort of stuff. So any, anything can have a transaction fee that's too high for you to move your tiny stash. I guess with Bitcoin, yeah, it's kind of harsh that, that, um, uh, that you can't move your stash if it's um, uh, under a certain value. But what you could do is you could just send it with a very low transaction fee and it's going to take a few hours longer to confirm. And, and I guess maybe 
part of the problem here is that people are either not aware that they can change transaction fees or they're using a client that enforces a very high transaction fee or they don't need, they're not even using a client at all they're moving from exchange to exchange and the exchange is like well you know we charge a 50 dollar fee that is what it is yeah, i think most wallets don't do a good job of uh, letting people set fees also in addition to estimation of fees so it, there's like a lot of problems with this in that need to be addressed from a engineering standpoint and usability standpoint. But uh, I mean, like Ricardo said, you can always lowball the fees. It's uh, it's like the weather, right? You, you just check and see is a mempool being spammed. If not, then you know, lowball and see if it'll go through in an hour or two. Before people freak out about the use of the term spam, um, I mean, like CryptoKitties is a spam, right? If, if we're being honest, um, it's, it's, like filling up the the Ethereum mempool um, with transactions that are probably not as important as um, as some others, at least ostensibly. Like so. what? ICO? No, I was thinking more like <laughs> Ether Delta before they got hacked, right? Um, but yeah, you know, like I mean, anything can be spam. Um, uh, for a long time, Satoshi Dice was spam, a major source of it. That's just a way of categorizing it using a term that is maybe not the best term, if we're being honest, but. It's, it's a, a reasonably good way of, um, of explaining that those transactions are probably not as important as some others. Well, I mean, some people say that, I mean, the, the term spam is, is kind of confusing because if you're paying enough uh, fee, then it's not really spam, right? So, yes, somebody may potentially be paying a lot of money to bloat the blockchain with transactions that are not real transactions so to speak um but they're paying the fees so you can't really call that spam yeah i mean it's kind of it, it potentially is like an attack um so someone is willing to pay whatever ten thousand dollars a day to bloat the bitcoin mempool to make bitcoin seem unusable and it's not that expensive if you're if you have like a billion dollars so um but yeah it's potentially it's an attack but it's something that we have to deal with we have to find a way to kind of maybe, I mean, that's why the fees, the fees are so high. It's because um, people, people are using Bitcoin. People are willing to pay the fees. Otherwise the fees wouldn't be this high. Yeah, exactly. So the, the next question was uh, because I asked uh, two days ago on Twitter uh, for people to post their questions. And one was, uh, how many coins do you think will be around in 20 to 50 years? And how much do you think uh, the market will be consolidated by them? Or will you have like uh, one particular type of coin, like one coin for anonymous transactions, one coin for like Bitcoin, one coin for smart contracts or whatever? How do you guys see that? Are you shilling one coin? <laughs> <laughs> There's only going to be one coin. It's, it's called one coin. Yeah, I think we'll see a lot, a lot fewer coins because a lot of the coins right now are just marketing coins. They're gimmicky and they serve no real purpose. Like if you really you don't think, it, you don't think that will still exist twenty years from now? I think that a lot of coins will exist, but a lot will disappear. Like the sure, but there will be new for everyone that disappears. It's probably going to be like five that shows up. I see it kind of a cycle. It's like an educational cycle. It's like. All the fork coins, right? Like every fork coin of uh, Bitcoin that comes out is less impactful because people realize, okay, this is kind of garbage. 
and they're not really going to care as much. But the first one, the first few, then you know, they're they can move the market. People are interested. It's a new new hypey thing, and they want in, right? But in 20 years, I think we'll see a lot of the coins will just die, either from their own uh, security issues or just lack of mining miners to to mine the coin. Yeah, there's definitely a faddish nature to this. Um, remember when a few years ago, uh, airdrops were all the thing, and then it was like, oh, Spain coin, and you know everyone was trying to do like a, a geographic coin, and then they would airdrop it to, on the Navajo what, what, Nation. What do you mean a few years ago? We're still in airdrop, like the prime time of airdrops. <laughs> okay, yeah, but now this is the new generation of airdrops because the geographic it's airdrops um, went away, and then there was like, you know, the master node hype. Like every coin must have master nodes, um, and and it just sort of goes through these. And, and then ICOs, everyone must do an ICO. It's like, oh, you're a startup, you must do an ICO. Forget about traditional VC. And it goes through this like this weird sort of hype cycle. Um, and and I think that we'll probably go through a, a ton more of those in the next 20 years but i do think that there's probably hopefully a handful of cryptocurrencies that exist today that will still be around in 20 years time um because of the the, the nature of the, their development because of the fact that they have people working on them for altruistic reasons um not just for for profit motivated reasons uh, and you know they have a, a community that's actually real and not just there to like get rich yeah that makes sense so, um, next question. Explain cryptocurrency to me like I'm a six-year-old. Well, I mean, I guess we have to explain it a little bit more complicated to a six-year-old. Okay, so I'll take a step. I'll take a step. <laughs> so, it's like you're at school and you have a, a chocolate bar and someone takes it from you at lunchtime. If uh, that chocolate bar was a digital currency, they couldn't take it from you. <laughs> That's so wrong. But what's the point of a chocolate bar if you can't eat it? Well, you can eat it, but they couldn't take it from you. Uh, okay. You try. You try. Imagine you have a chocolate bar, but if someone takes it from you, they will have to return it to you because everyone else in the yard says that the chocolate bar belongs to you. So they can't take it from you. When has that ever happened? When has that ever happened, Charlie? And so they know yeah. who has chocolate bars and who, if you give your chocolate bar to someone, then it's fine because everyone can see that. But if someone tries to steal yep. it from you, then everyone will beat them up if they don't give it back. That's a good one, actually. I'm going to use that from now on. Um, I, I saw a tweet about recently that there are children now who are nine years old and like Bitcoin has been there their entire life. And it's really crazy when you think about that. And they will grow up with Bitcoin and they will like understand it better than, than anyone else. I have a, a family yeah. friend, a family friend of ours, um, their kid a while back, um, I was on my laptop and the kid came up and started pushing on the screen. Like it's, it must be a touch screen and couldn't understand why stuff wasn't working. Um, you know, when you grow up with technology, like, like capacitive touch screens, then you take for granted the fact that some screens are not touch screens. And I think that that's, that's going to happen. You're going to have kids who like, they, why, why must they swipe a card? They want to scan a QR code to pay. And what do you mean they can't send money over, like to somebody who lives in another country? That's just weird. Um, another question. How do you sleep at night? I don't know in what context it was, but someone asked to all of us, how do you sleep at night? It might have been a troll. Uh, usually it lights off with a soft pillow. Fluffy blanket. Butt naked is all pony sleep. 
TMI, TMI. I don't sleep. Yeah, I don't think Samsung sleeps either. So, uh, uh, Ricardo, can you talk about the uh, Nimble Wimble uh, implementation in Monero? Yeah, it's so it's something that we that we've been playing around with, and and by we I mean like people around me who are interested in in this. We'll probably do Mimble Wimble stuff as like um, like a merge mine side chain or something like that. We've we've looked at different deployment mechanisms and cool ways to do it. Um, and, and I think that the merge mine sidechain model is, is probably the best we're going to get for now um, because it provides a, a nice coupling and we don't need to go and like and adopt a new security model. We are, we're hooking into Monero's security model. Um, and the nice thing is if, if we build it out in such a way that um, uh, we build a lightning router that's compatible with the, the Mimblewimble sidechain and compatible with Monero, then we get atomic swaps over lightning. So that's kind of cool because then we don't need to worry about how do we do atomic swaps between main chain and side chain. Yeah, and uh, talking about uh, atomic swaps, um, Charlie, how long do you think that it will take before that will come like a common thing with, with Litcoin and uh, with Bitcoin? Well, so I guess we're still waiting for people to start using Lightning Network, right? For Lightning Network to be, to be um, more mainstream and for people to adopt it. So I think 2018, we'll see we'll see Lightning Network um, really being used. Um, I'm hoping like ex big exchanges like Coinbase will will really embrace it and actually be like one of the largest Lightning Network nodes. Yeah. So once once that happens, then we'll have Lightning Networks on multiple chains, and then we'll see atomic swaps. You know what's really cool about Lightning okay, is nice. that um, um, you can have like um, super lightweight clients like web wallets um, for Lightning that don't need to know about the consensus model of the underlying system at all. Um, so it means that yeah. it's, a, it's significantly easier to build a lightweight client. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's the beauty of the like second layer technology, right? Like you can abstract away the complexity of the, of the base layer. Yeah, and uh, the last important question is when is the real cartoon coming out? So many people, everyone was so excited about the intro. <laughs> nice job, Samsung. Uh, but uh, now everyone's asking for like the cartoon or like a couple of minutes episode or like a full length movie. So, well, I think we can do some shorts, maybe like a couple of minutes long, tell some short stories. Uh, the movie, you know, I don't know, sometime in 2019. We gotta raise some raise some Next money. Year. That's gonna Next be year. expensive. Next year. Uh, I mean, should we do an ICO, right? Uh, an initial cartoon? Yeah, ICO. Yeah. Totally. But I'm thinking about what we could do for a movie, uh, and I think Charlie has some ideas too. So it's definitely a possibility. Uh, some yeah. other people thought it was interesting to like educate their kids about crypto. A lot of children like the song and everything, so it might actually be also educational for children. Will Penna, you can sing the song for us, right? Um, something, something about a pony and a lion and something, yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess that's it for this month. So thank you guys for joining and see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.